I've entitled the lesson today, Violence and Perversion, Will History Repeat Itself? On September 20th in 2018, in the suburb of Baltimore, four people were shot to death at a pharmaceutical distribution center. The shooter was a was born male. He was a homosexual. He was in the process of transitioning to female. In Denver, Colorado on May 7, 2019, at a technology center, one was killed, eight were injured. The shooter there was a lesbian, born female, transitioning to male. You may remember this, in 2022 on November 19th, just before midnight at a nightclub, five were shot dead, 25 were injured, born male, homosexual, non-binary was the shooter. And of course, most recently, all of us remember about a month ago in Nashville, Tennessee, six were killed in an elementary school by a person who was born female uh, with lesbian background, transitioning male. We really have a new and dangerous aspect of life that's unfolding in America. It's something that most of us might not have imagined decades ago. This new and very deadly aspect of life in America is involving homosexual and transsexual violence. The four examples that I cited is not a complete list. These are the, the, these are the ones that you can find easily. There are, I believe, many others that have been buried by the media who do not wish to know that this is an element of that lifestyle. <clears throat> Homosexuality is a game changer. It's something that we have been dealing with in this nation for about 30 years now. But homosexuality has spawned the transsexual movement. It is, in a sense, the parent of a wide variety of sexual perversions, including pedophilia and necrophilia and other bizarre things that none of us would wish to really talk or think about, or any most of us would have never thought of. Homosexuality is the door that has opened this new and evil Pandora's box. If the trend continues, if that door is not closed, more perversions will follow. Homosexuality is not just another sin. Fortunately, we live in a very large nation, a nation that has much space and distance. We are in a position that some peoples and nations, we have a luxury that others do not have. We have the distance and space to find a corner away from the other aspects and elements of American life that we find distasteful. If you lived in the Czech Republic or Holland, that would be much more difficult. <clears throat> the Bible provides us some insight into this trend and into the problem that we're facing. This isn't really a new problem. Homosexual behavior is as nearly as old as mankind's history. 
at some epochs in time, nations manage to do well in this area. And once upon a time, the United States of America did very well. But with changing times, changing standards of conduct and morality, changing mores and folkways, homosexuality has been mainstreamed. The pressure upon you and I is rather constant. You cannot escape it. When I was a young person in high school, this was a small problem. For my parents, when they were in high school in the 1940s, this was an unknown problem. For our children, they see it and face it, and our young people, no matter where they go. It doesn't matter where they work, what school they attend, where they travel, they find it everywhere now. So it's an issue that has to be confronted. And because the pressure is constant upon all of us to continuously compromise, 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 reduce our standard, change our attitude, think and look at it differently than we have in the past, because that pressure is so constant, we must, we must push back. We have no choice if we're going to remain biblically constant and true to our faith, to re- but to revisit this in our heart and our soul and bolster our emotional, mental, and spiritual sinews, strengthen them from time to time, or we too will sag and yield and compromise So we cannot let that happen. (laughs) So for those that are listening this morning that are here present, or for those who may listen later on Rumble or some other social media, all of us in whatever place we find ourselves must continuously reinvigor our mental and our spiritual values to resist this constant and continuous, insidious, an evil, sinister, malicious pressure that comes at us from practically every direction. Now, I did state that this was not particularly a new problem. The Bible does provide considerable insight into this. I'd like to begin with our opening passage, the prime passage that we're going to study, by asking you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter number 19. We're going to visit a story in Judges chapter number 19 as a beginning point and as a useful point to consider this problem and to consider what the Bible really states. We want our attitudes to match Scripture. We want our ideas about this topic to match the Bible. We want to see this as God sees it. We want to understand it through the pages of the Bible. So the best place to begin is in Scripture. So if you'll turn to Judges chapter 19, we're going to read together a portion of this chapter and a few other passages that are adjacent to kind of get a sense of where we need to go. But let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Judges before we start in chapter number 19. 
The book of Judges covers several hundred years of the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. It begins with Joshua, and it begins with the, uh, the judges that follow him, that act as the spiritual and military leaders of this loose confederation of Israelite tribes. It begins very well, and we find many noble heroes in the early chapters of the book of Judges. As time passes, though, when we get to the latter portion of the book of Judges, particularly beginning in chapter number 17, the last five chapters of the book of Judges have a much different flavor than the first 16 chapters. So in each of the first 16 chapters, we will find a hero, a great man, an admirable one, one that you can model and example and you can root for. The last judge that is mentioned is a definite flawed hero, that's Samson, but a hero nonetheless, one that you can get behind, and you can say he finished well even though he had a few flaws here and there. And we could really say Samson was a good and noble man in the bigger picture despite the several flaws that we see. But beginning in chapter 17, the atmosphere, the flavor, the, the, the times in which they were living change. And the last five chapters tell us the history and the stories of Israel in the declining period. A true downhill slide, a true declension of the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. And we find ourselves struggling in the last five chapters to find a hero we can get behind. Someone we can admire. Someone we can say, well, he's not perfect, but I can, I can say there's a good man who's trying. And so, that, such is the case when we start reading in Judges chapter 19. Now those last five chapters are framed by two verses. If you'll turn to chapter 17, near the beginning of these, this last ep period, this last epoch of Judges, we find in verse 6... This verse, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So beginning this downward period, that verse appears. Concluding this period is the very last verse of the book of Judges, which reads identically. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now the key phrase, as we look at these repeated verses, at the beginning and the end of this last, these last five chapters, this period of decline in the book of Judges, the key phrase there is this. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It appears that the children of Israel left behind the Word of God, left behind the law of God, left behind the precepts and the examples of their forefathers, and began to do that which they thought was right in their own eyes. And the result was chaos, catastrophe, all kinds of troubles. It makes for an adventuresome read. But it is certainly not something that you would sink your teeth into and say, boy, I wish I was a part of that. 
The central problem thus is what theologians would call epistemological, which is a big old fancy word that just means you're dealing with your truth, with truth, the source of truth. And the children of Israel had left behind God and the Word of God and the law of God as the source of truth and were grasping at whatever else they wanted to be their truth. My truth, your truth, whatever truth that seems to fit for the moment, that's what I'll grab a hold of. So without further ado, let's, let's start jumping in to this chapter, Judges chapter 19, and we're going to find a really uh, interesting and colorful and rather sad tale that has some real strong overtones and, and usefulness, I think, for our own time in the history of the United States and the Western world. So let's begin, jump into this story. Are you ready? Judges chapter 19. Let's read the first three verses. Now I'm going to read and you follow along. Has everybody got your Bibles ready? Judges 19, beginning of verse 1. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. There's that phrase. And we can probably infer from that that every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. That there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again, having his servant with him and a couple of asses. And she brought him into her father's house. When the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. So let's just pause. We get the sense of the beginning of this story. A Levite takes a wife out of another tribe. She proves to be unfaithful, played the whore, the harlot, ends up going back to her father's house. So he goes to fetch her. And her father, father of the girl, greets this man with friendliness. Now we'll skip a few verses because there's a long dialogue about how the father and, and this man who wishes to have his his concubine back, a concubine, by the way, is sort of a second-class wife, one who probably came from a poor background and did not enjoy the rights of inheritance. But he wants his wife back, his concubine back, and so they talk and they talk and they talk and they chat and they eat dinner and they eat chat and they eat dinner and then he spends the night and they chat some more and they talk and talk. And the script, Scripture goes through all of this dialogue. And finally, they leave. The Levite starts to head home, back to Ephraim. And so he leaves, and he and his servant and the young lady start for home. And it so happens, we'll go down now to verse 15 and continue the story, if you would please. Let's begin in verse 15 of this chapter. They happen to stop at a small town named Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. They have to pass through the territory of Benjamin to return to the Levites' home in the land of Ephraim. So let's begin at verse 15 and read. Now we're going to read all the way down to the end of this chapter, verses 15 through 30. Now I would like to ask the congregation to read with me, all right? You're going to find this story, if not admirable, at least colorful, all right? So let's begin in verse number 15. I'm going to read 15. You follow at 16. We'll read responsibly from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. Is everyone ready? Here we go. And they turned aside thither to go in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the street of the city, for there is no man that took them into his house to lodge. 
Joshua was of the Mount Ephraim, and he sojourned in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he had lifted up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And the old man said, Whither goest thou, and whence comest thou? And he said unto him, We are passing from Bethlehem, Judah, toward the side of Mount Ephraim. From thence am I. And I went to Bethlehem, Judah, but I am now going to the house of the Lord. And there is no man that receiveth me to house. Yet there is both straw and provender for our asses. There is bread and wine also for me, and for thy handmaid, for the young man which is with thy servants. And there is no want of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with thee. Howsoever, all thy wants lie upon me, only lodge not in the street. So he brought him into his house, gave provender unto the asses, and they washed their feet and did eat and drink. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the sons city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about, and beat at the door, and spake to the master of it of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly, seeing that this man is come into mine house, do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken unto him. So the man took his concubine, brought her forth unto them. And they knew her, and abused her all the night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day, and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was, till it was light. And her Lord rose up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman his concubine was fallen down at the door of the house, and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said up to her, Up, and let us be going. But none answered. And the man took her up upon his ass, and the man rose up and got him into his place. And when he was come into his house, he took a knife and laid hold on his concubine and divided her together with her bones into twelve pieces and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. And it was so that all that saw it said, There is no such deed see, nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider it, take advice, and speak your minds. I told you that was an interesting story, didn't you? Didn't, didn't I? <laughs> so let's see if we can recap the highlights. So the man and the concubine, his servant, they come into the town of Gibeah. The servant actually did not want to stop there, but they did. And so there's no one to take them in. An old man comes strolling through the streets and says, Hey, you don't want to sleep in the streets, do you? No, I guess we really don't. So he says, Come on over to my house. So they all go over to the old man's house. Turns out the old man was also of the tribe of Ephraim and happened to be living in the town of Gibeah. Well, the old man knew that the town of Gibeah probably had problems. But that's why he said, you don't want to spend the night in the streets. In the middle of the night, they're surrounded by a mob of young men. Evil men, wicked men. The mob wants this old man to release to them the Levite who was visiting so they could have their way with him. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. The old man says, no, 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 no. 
Uh, we can't, I can't release him, but you can have my daughter, and we'll send out the old man's concubine. Well, in the end, what happens is the, the concubine is sent out. She's abused all night long. And when day comes, <laughs> there she is. She staggers back, falls at the doorstep of the house, and they find her laying on the ground. The Levite says to her, Hey, wake up! Get up! Load up! It's time to go! We're going home. She doesn't move. He tosses onto the back of the donkey, and off they go, back to Mount Ephraim. When he arrives home, takes her dead body, carves into 12 chunks, sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. What a story. Do you find a hero in there somewhere? Someone you can say, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for that fella or that gal. No, you find a lot of... <laughs> You're looking for someone you can get behind, and there's just nobody there, really, is there? You know, if we examine and take time to kind of consider what we've looked at, we can see if there's a few elements we can, we can perceive. First of all, you can kind of begin to perceive the flavor of the times. The children of Israel seem to be, have limited self-control when it comes to obeying the law of God. We find that the unnamed woman... It's hard not to have a lot of pity for her. But at the beginning, we're told that she was a harlot. She, was, she had gone into, she had made, you know, she made some very poor choices of her own. For which apparently this Levite, who is early in the chapter called her husband, and later in the chapter called her master, but the Levite didn't have much sympathy for her. At first you think, well, there is a kind old man in the city of Gibeah. And then you begin to wonder what kind of moral standards he has when he offers his daughter to the mob of evil men. And then we see that the Levite himself, you would think, would have a sense of morality and virtue being a Levite, but he seems to have a pretty strong spirit of harshness, a remarkable spirit of harshness, at least in my view. But then we discover, of course, we have in verse 22... We have the central problem. And the central problem in verse 22 is worth pausing to look at again. If you read commentaries, many modern commentaries, if you happen to get online and look at some of the commentaries you can find, they seem to sort of back away from verse number 22 and try to put a little different spin on the story. But we need to really grasp what was happening. Because if it wasn't for verse 22 this story would really not be much of a story. If it hadn't been for what occurs in that verse, the man, his servant, and the concubine would have safely returned home to their tents in Mount Ephraim, and the story would be over. And they'd pick up their life as they had before the best they could. But I'd like to look at verse 22 again to make sure you understand what's happening in verse 22, and what the central problem is, because if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand how all the other tribes reacted when they found out about this episode. So let's look at verse 22 carefully. I'll read it again. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, it's a euphemism meaning evil and wicked men, Beset the house round about, and beat at the door, and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, 
Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. Now that phrase, that we may know him, is a euphemism for they wanted to have sexual relations with him. These were homosexuals. These were, as Scripture might describe them, sodomites. Now you might think, well, that's probably, you're reading too much into it. That probably is a mistranslation. Well, it's not. And even many other translations are very plain. And I I took the time to look up a couple of other common translations for verse 22. So that if you happen to look at modern commentaries that sort of shy away from this, most translations, to their credit, and a little bit surprising, do not. For example, here's how the Revised Standard Version reads verse 22. When they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said, bring the old man, they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may have intercourse with him. The Amplified Bible reads like this. They said to the master of the house, the old man, bring forth the man who came to your house that we may have intercourse with him. The Living Bible, this was a surprise to me, it reads like this. Just as they were beginning to warm to the occasion, a gang of sex perverts gathered around the house, began beating the door and yelling at the old man to bring out the man who was staying with him so that they could rape him. And even the New International Version gets it substantially correct, which reads like this. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. No, I don't like to read that, and you probably don't like to hear it. But it's central to this story, and it's central to understanding what was happening to the children of Israel at that time, and what kind of a society they had decayed into. Now, before we leave this story and try to go a little further and make some applications and have a little better understanding of the sin of homosexuality, we need to find out how the rest of the children of Israel responded to this event, this very surprising event, when you get in, I don't know, if you got FedEx, a piece of a lady's body in the mail, I don't know what to think about that. That's a little hard to swallow, but let's move along. Let's go to Judges chapter 20, and let's survey the first portion of this chapter as we consider what the other tribes of Israel are going to do about this situation. Because this Levite, he is seeking some sort of action. He thinks he has been wronged. He thinks he's been wronged. All right. So let's begin in Judges chapter 20. We'll read a little bit. Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation were gathered together as one man, from Dan to Beersheba, with the land of Gilead unto the Lord in Mizpah. And all the chief of the people of the tribes presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. And if we drop down to verse 4, it tells us that the Levite, the husband of the woman that was slain, tells his story. He says, I went to Gibeah, and our house was surrounded by a mob, and they were trying to kill me, and, you know, had all these terrible things they were trying to do, and they ended up raping my concubine, and so forth. And, and uh, just to show you what How it all turned out, here, you know, you received all her body parts. What should we do about it? What are you guys going to do about it? And that's what he says in verse 7. 
The Levite says, Behold, you are the children of Israel. Give here your advice and counsel. What should be done? Shouldn't something be done? And all the people arose as one man saying, We will not any of us go to his tent, neither will any of us go turn to his house. We're not going to go home. Verse 9 now, Judges 20. But now this thing shall be the thing we will do to Gibeah. We will go up by lot against it. And we will take ten men of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, a hundred of a thousand, a thousand out of ten thousand, to fetch victuals for the people that they may do when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin according to all the folly that they have wrought in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. So they decide now the best thing to do is to go up to the city of Gibeah, this small town, and we're going to punish them. We're going to form an army. We're going to surround the town and punish them. We're going to punish this town. Now you might think, well, I don't know if that was really a good idea or not. Actually, it wasn't too bad of an idea. If you go back to Judges, excuse me, to Deuteronomy chapter number 13, and you read verses 12 through 15, it describes that that actually is probably, possibly, the actual correct action. That if there is a town or a village that has committed great iniquity and sin, and that little town is protecting the people that committed the iniquity, then the rest of the children of Israel are supposed to go to that town and village and attack it. Bring it into line. So their idea to surround the little town of Gibeah and, and, and attack this small city was actually a biblical idea. It was a part of God's law. It was meant to be sort of a self-accountability system. Well, let's see then. Let's read just a little further in, in Judges chapter 20. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What wickedness is this that is done among you? Now therefore deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death. And put away evil from Israel. So the elders of Benjamin now are asked to deliver the guilty people, the wicked men of Gibeah. Now you can perceive from the response of the elders of the other 11 tribes that they perceived that the great wrong, the great wrong was the men of Benjamin who were homosexuals, sodomites, rapists, and various and sundry perverts who sought to ply this evil and malicious trade upon this Levite who was traveling through. Well, it turns out, if we keep reading in verse 13, the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel, but it says, the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together to the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. So now we discover that the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, rather than saying, well, the town of Gibeah is protecting a mob of evil young men that need punishment, instead of saying, we're going to find those young men and we're going to deliver them up for justice, Instead, not only do the city leaders of Gibeah defend their, the, the, the guilty mob inside the town, but the entire tribe of Benjamin 
decides they're going to defend this iniquitous and evil sin. So we now have a, a very moment of high drama. One of the tribes has dug in their heels, and in their pride, they have decided they're going to defend this iniquity, this sin, against all of the other tribes who are reacting, at least somewhat biblically, to try to, try to bring some sort of accountability to this iniquitous situation. It's kind of a wild story, isn't it? If you keep reading in chapter 20, it gets even wilder, if you can imagine that. Now, we don't have time to read through the whole chapter, so I'm just going to tell you what happens next. What happens next is that war breaks out. The 11 tribes go up against the children of Benjamin in a battle. The children of Benjamin, on day number one, defeat them. On day number two, another battle commences. And on the second day, the children of Benjamin defeat them again. The children of Israel scratch their heads, enter into a time of reflection and prayer. And they're told by God, go up a third time. This time I'll deliver them into your hands. So they do. And so on the third day, a great battle is fought. And this time the children of Benjamin are defeated, dramatically defeated. The children of Israel end up slaughtering every male, every female, and every child in the tribe of Benjamin, except for 600 men. If you carefully read the rest of the chapter, and I think I'm reading it right, the children of Israel go throughout the tribe of Benjamin, they tear down their cities, they destroy, they slaughter, they mutilate, they do everything they can, and they wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin, except for 600 Benjamites who manage to run away to a rocky hilltop where they hide in the rocks and the caves. The entire tribe of Benjamin is wiped out. So it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a remarkable end to this tragic event that the tribe of Benjamin has been essentially utterly destroyed. The final chapter of the book of Judges describes the regret of the children of Israel in going that far, in going beyond the destruction of the city of Gibeah, which appears to be perhaps biblically justified, but to destroy all of the women and the children in the tribe of Benjamin, so that now an entire tribe has been essentially eliminated from Israel. Now, we won't read about that last chapter, but when you have time, maybe this afternoon, you can follow up on how it all came out and how they solved this problem in a rather creative and slightly unusual way. But that's for another story. The Civil War, this is really Israel's first civil war, not the last, the first. It was basically unrestrained, though, and there were a lot of sad ripple effects that unfold. Now, with the remainder of our time, I'd like to shift gears as we have this backdrop of Scripture, this story of Scripture, of this evil and iniquitous time in which every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes, so it seemed, 
And even when they do attempt to uh, 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 implement some biblical precept, they do it poorly, wrongly, in a, in a, in a way that is uh, unjust and unrestrained. And for the most part, we find the children of Israel just really struggling, deeply struggling, because they've disconnected themselves from God, from morality, from the laws of their fathers, and the words of Scripture. You know, there are three great sins that seem to walk together when a society moves into destruction, self-destruction. Three great sins. They walk together when societies move into self-destruction. The three are abortion, race mixing, and sodomy. I don't know which one you personally find the most offensive. It's kind of hard to choose, isn't it? But sodomy is perhaps the most unnatural, and sodomy is typically found in the last stage of social decay in societies found throughout history. There are many people now who constantly are going to tell us in our time, in our nation, in the society we live in, as you make your way to work, as you make your way just interacting with people round about, maybe even just doing your shopping. Constantly, people are trying to say that sodomy is just one more sin among others. In fact, there are many who will say it's not a sin at all. But if it is a sin, it's not any worse than any of the sins that you church people commit. After all, you church people are guilty of hypocrisy. You pretend to be perfect in the pews, and then you go home and you... You know, you, who knows, you do some, something at home that's not quite right. So you're a hypocrite. And you church people have other sins. You probably lie once in a while, or you maybe don't report all your income to the IRS, or maybe you don't have a driver's license when you should have, or maybe this or that. You're rude to your neighbor. You yell at your wife. You people are a bunch of evil hypocrites, and your sins are just as bad as those homosexuals because homosexuality isn't a sin. They were born that way. Well, you hear that a lot, don't you? Is that not true? That's the attitude. Well, it's not a biblical attitude. And they're not correct. And whether or not you can persuade them that they're not correct, you and your heart need to know that they are wrong, wrong, wrong. It is not God's perspective upon sodomy at all. Homosexuality is a great, grievous, and awful sin. And it is more offensive to God than many other sins. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Any sin would keep you out of heaven. That is true. That is true. So in respect to eternal life, it doesn't take much to be knocked off your rail, does it? But in respect to the consequences, to the people around you, there is a big difference. There is an awesome difference. There is a dramatic difference. And Scripture teaches us that in this world and in this life, there is a great difference between sodomy as one of the great abominations in God's eyes and other sins that are less. Now you say, well, can you really prove and show that one sin is worse than others? Yes, we can. 
I'll read just one verse out of the New Testament, because that's probably where we're going to have to land here on this topic, just to show you that some sins are greater than others. Jesus said this when he was before Pilate. He said, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me into thee hath the greater sin. In this case, there was a sin that was greater than another. We could go to Ezekiel, who describes the sins of Ahola and Aholabah, two words that describe Israel and Judah, in which he describes one as having greater sin than the other. We could go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, and we could read about a comparison of sins, and we can discover that some are greater than others. That's the case with homosexuality. Now, I've got to get this in the record, and I'll have to move quickly. But we must understand that the New Testament condemns homosexuality just like the Old Testament does as well. If we, I'll read three passages for you very quickly, and we'll move on. Romans chapter 1 beginning of verse 26, begins to describe the act of homosexual behavior. And that's what we're talking about, the act of homosexual behavior. We're not trying to peer into what one man's heart thinks secretly. It's a question of the act. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 26, it says that God gave them unto, up unto vile affections, even the woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly. And we can continue to read on down as it describes it further and the consequences. But verse 32 tells us the consequences. It tells us what they deserve. It's pretty hard language for the New Testament. But verse 32 says that, these people, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Amen. Well, that's pretty strong language for a New Testament. Amen. It's not the kind of language that we're used to thinking in terms of the New Testament. But if that's not persuasive, if you don't believe that the words of St. Paul are, are been divided out rightly, let me take you to 1 Timothy, and we'll look at another passage that's worth mentioning here. 1 Timothy chapter number... 1, beginning at verse number 8. Well, I'll drop down to verse number 10. It's a list of sins. 1 Timothy 8, beginning at verse 10. A list of sins. And it says, whoremongers. And then it says, for them who defile themselves with mankind. Now, if you look up that word, them who defile themselves with mankind, in the Greek, you'll discover that that is talking about sodomy. It's the Greek word arsenokoitis, number 733, it means sodomites. Say, well, maybe, maybe not, I'm not convinced. Well, how about this passage? If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you might remember this, recognize these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. The fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers themselves of mankind, etc., 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 will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now that phrase, abusers of themselves with mankind, is the same Greek word. Arsenicoitus. Sodomites. Fortunately, fortunately, there's not many who take advantage of this, but fortunately, it is a sin that can be repented of and forgiven, and they can indeed inherit the kingdom of God if they will repent of that sin and walk away. And it can be done. It can be abandoned. Being a compulsion, it's not easy to walk away from it, and most don't. You might say, well, we should really feel sorry for them. Well, you know, I suppose there may be cases where that might be true. But, you know, you don't really see that in Scripture. If you read the Bible, and, and you can look at all the passages you want that, in which this topic comes up, I have yet to really find a passage in which God is sympathetic to this sin, in which God expresses instructions that we should view them with pity and with sympathy. Instead, all we find is revulsion. Revulsion. Leviticus chapter 18, you know these verses. They need to be in the record, but you'll recognize them. There are two passages in Leviticus, Leviticus 18:22, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination. And then Leviticus 20, verse 13, tells us, if a man also lie with mankind as he lies with woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. The word abomination there is a strong word. You say, well, you know, that word appears elsewhere too, doesn't it? It does. There's another place where it appears that a lot of you might think of, and there's, a, there's really two types of abominations in the Hebrew language. There's the abomination that use, is used to describe unclean food. If you read in Leviticus chapter 11, it describes some of the the, the swine and some of the birds and things that are forbidden, it describes them as an, as an abomination. But it turns out it's not the same Hebrew word. It's not the same type of an abomination. That type of an abomination, unclean food, is describing <clears throat> essentially a filthy object. This type of an abomination, sodomy, is describing an action, a compulsion, something that comes from inside. It's a filthy compulsion. It's in a different Hebrew word that has a different connotation. It's not correct to say that a, a sincere Baptist goes home from church and has a ham sandwich after church is somehow the same as a sodomite who practices in the darkness and privacy of his bedroom is evil acts. They are not synonymous or comparative in any way, shape, or form. And to argue that it is, is wrong biblically, wrong from God's point of view, and that's the point of view that counts. Homosexual behavior is worse than other sins in another way. 
It's a, there's a, it's a double sin. It's a double sin. There are two boundaries that are crossed in this lifestyle. There is the natural boundary that is crossed, and then there is the unnatural boundary that is crossed. It actually is worse than adultery, even though both are capital crimes. If you have a man who is unfaithful to his wife, finds another lady, and has relations with her, that is adultery. It's very much against God's law, and God is certainly very upset about that. That's the first boundary that is crossed. But that's a natural boundary, and it's not as surprising. But the homosexual act crosses that boundary as well by committing some sort of a fornication. And the unnatural boundary that grows out of this perverse compulsion. Homosexual behavior is profound in its harmfulness. I'm just going to read five quick facts for you about this. I don't have time to verify them, but they can be verified. I just don't have time to do it now. Turns out that statistically, homosexuals molest children at approximately ten, ten times the rate of heterosexuals. So to suggest that homosexual predators of children are not really worse than heterosexual predators of children isn't quite fair to say because they do it at ten times the rate. Not that I'm defending the other at all. That is grievous and evil. Evil. Turns out that same-sex parents molest children at higher rates than opposite gender parents. Turns out that homosexual abuse of children can be shown to foster a generational cycle. If you're looking for someone to place your sympathy with regarding this sin, it would be the children who have been abused and brought up in it, and in their confusion as a small child, are never allowed to develop natural affections the way they ought, because they have been exposed and abused in a way that confuses them deeply in their heart and their soul. Turns out that homosexuals are more prone to mental illness and substance abuse than the general public. We see that. We see, we see that in, in some of these shootings. And of course, homosexuals live somewhere between 8 and 16 years less than their normal counterparts because there are many side effects, shall we say, of this evil activity that introduce problems. <laughs> the sin of sodomy has a uniquely ugly place in the Bible. Most of us, are, of course, are familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah were certainly not the only places this sin occurred in ancient times. It was known in many ancient societies and cities. It was found among the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and there we could go on and on. Yet the city of Sodom was selected to be an object lesson in world history. It was an object lesson of total desolation. It was meant to show God's wrath and anger and to indicate that there is a point in which God has simply 
had enough. In the story we looked at today, it's not as well known, but we see that the tribe of Benjamin was almost entirely wiped out for their defense of this small town filled with sodomites. Interestingly enough, there are many who believe that the beast, the Antichrist, will be a homosexual. I personally believe that the beast is a man. The last verse of Revelation chapter 13 tells us that he's a man. There are indications in Scripture, they're not powerful, they're not definitive, but in Daniel chapter 11 there is a passage that describes this antichrist, this beast, and describes him as being possibly a homosexual. And in Revelation chapter 11, the beast is compared to Sodom. In the early verses of Revelation verses 7 and 8, we see that the city of Sodom is connected to the beast, spiritually called Sodom. We thus return to where we began. It's a sobering sin. And you and I are placed in awkward situations on a not infrequent basis when we are asked to react to this evil sin in a way that is unbiblical by telling us that we must act with sympathy, we must act with mercy, we must act with kindness, we must act with long-suffering. Or worse, we must condone it. We must even perhaps celebrate it, encourage it, foster it, welcome it, admire it. All of this is nonsense. It's wrong. And we have to be willing to stand where Scripture places the truth. It is, a, it is something that is a revulsion to God. It is an abomination. It does immense destruction to individuals, to families, to communities, and perhaps to entire nations. And if we wish to be really segregated from a nation that's moving in the wrong direction, we have to be ready, be ready not to compromise, and we have to be ready to, to, to take some flack. We have to really know and understand that when there's a part of you that says this is disgusting and wrong, you're standing where God is. That is God's opinion. Because that's how God views it, as both repulsive and destructive. Now this is not a call for you to exercise violence or vigilantism. And it's a pity that I have to say that. But I must. I must tell you, don't go get your gun. Don't take the law into your own hands. God will be the judge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It is not your job to exercise God's vengeance upon the wicked. It is your job to tell the wicked that they are sinning. It is your job to tell your friends and neighbors and your family who say that, oh, you're just very mean and ugly, to say, no, I'm sorry, but I think you're, you're mistaken. It's not my intention to be mean and ugly. It's my intention to be biblical and to be right and to point out that this is evil, wrong, and harmful. That is our duty. So, I must remind you, please do not engage in vigilantism or violence. But we ought to be repulsed the way God is, and we ought to have a sense that we are not going to react in the same way that our ancestors did in the days of the judges, in which every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time. God bless you.